Hi, I'm Josh, and welcome to the Wild Nature Photography Podcast, the podcast that talks the art, the craft, and the travel delays of nature photography. It is the, 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 what is it? This is the 18th of February, 2023, and this is podcast number 64. This is going to be a podcast that's mostly about uh, cold weather clothing, but um, just before I get into the topic of the day, I just want to briefly wrap up my Arctic Fox expedition, which finished a couple of days ago. I'm actually in Doha at the moment uh, on my way back home from that expedition. It was a fantastic trip. We had uh, the first couple of days, we had really superb conditions, a lot of snow, some strong wind, uh, some gentle snowfall. We had just about everything that was fantastic in the first couple of days, which made for really outstanding photography. In fact, I think one day alone, I made over 3,000 images that day of Arctic Fox. So it was an extremely prolific day. And then we had a little bit of rain. Uh, in fact, we had a lot of rain and some very strong wind that saw us pretty much spend the day inside that day uh, editing and processing images. So we had a little bit of everything weather-wise, some breaking sun as well on the on the trip. And that was fantastic. It looked like we were going to potentially be delayed uh, starting the expedition as a result of just, again, strong winds. There's been very, very strong winds in Iceland this winter. Uh, it's been storm after storm after storm. And uh, I think most of the Icelanders have had enough of winter this year. But um, anyway, we were, looked like we were going to be delayed. I had advised everybody to, that it was going to be best to arrive in Izafira a couple of days early. Uh, so thankfully, everyone had booked a couple of days early. And even though those flights were delayed, it meant that uh, once we got to Izafira, we were actually able to leave on time. So that was fantastic. We didn't lose any time at all on the expedition. We got away on our original planned day, which was great. I actually drove up this year rather than fly up um, I actually prefer to drive. It's a long drive. It's, it's, it's about eight hours in winter and it can be very, very difficult driving conditions on the snow and the ice. Um, so you've sort of got to know what you're doing and be comfortable driving in bad weather, bad winter weather, uh, and driving on snow and ice. There are three big mountain passes that you need to go over between Reykjavik and Izafira in the Northwest Fjords. And those passes are no joke. Um, they can be uh, very, very difficult with very, very low visibility or zero visibility driving on snow and ice. Um, typically with Iceland being such a freeze-thaw climate, uh, you quite often get very, very icy roads there where there has been a lot of snow, it's melted, and then it's refrozen again. So it was difficult. But I made it, made it safely there and back, and everyone made it up there on time as we were able to depart on time on the boat. We ran Our expedition ran full length, which was fantastic. We actually had six foxes around the cabin this year, which was just fabulous. Uh, including the old male that I've been photographing, who I affectionately term Basil, who I've been photographing for, I think, seven years now. Fantastic old fox. He's probably in his last winter, which is a bit sad. He's moving very, very slowly. I'll post a little bit of video of him uh, when I write up the Arctic fox trip report, which will be in the next few days when I get home and back to Australia. But uh, we also had a couple of uh, one-year-old and two-year-old cubs that were around, uh, dominant female was around. Uh, the old male was actually coming within just a few inches of the wide-angle lens this year. So just superb opportunities for photography with all the foxes. And certainly we took advantage of all the good weather we had for photography during that trip. I think most people on this trip made between 7,000 and more than 12,000 images. So very, very high rate of uh, high shooting rate, if you like. And with a big degree of keepers as well. I've had a very quick look through the images that I shot 
during the trip and I have at least I would say six to eight images that I'm really really happy with of arctic fox in the snow so I'll get some of those processed and up onto my uh, blog and website uh, in the next few days when I get back to Australia. Now speaking of getting back to Australia as I said I'm actually in Doha at the moment I'm at the Doha airport at the Oryx Hotel. My flight uh, from Iceland to London was on time but then my flight leaving London with British Airways to Doha was delayed by uh, pretty much two hours which meant that by the time I got to Doha there was half an hour to transit for my flight to Perth Australia there was no way I was going to make that so they were waiting for us when we got off the plane to tell us that nope we'd missed the transfer and we would have to find new flights home um, which was all good and well. I had originally booked my flights with Qantas. Uh, so I rang up Qantas and said, okay, we've missed the connection. What happens? In typical Qantas fashion, they couldn't help me. They said, no, we can't help you. It's a code share flight. We take no responsibility. It's just absolutely pathetic. Um, but thankfully, Qatar stepped up to the plate. They got me on the next flight to Melbourne in business class, which is leaving Doha tonight at about 8.30. That's in about five hours from now, I think. So four or five hours from now, I'll be making my way back to, to Australia. And thankfully that flight's direct into Melbourne. So uh, I don't have to go via Perth. And that means that I'm actually going to get into Melbourne just about five hours later than I would have if, if I'd made my connection. So I'm pretty happy with that. That's pretty fantastic. Uh, and then I'll deal with the issue of hotels and insurance and all that sort of stuff later on, which is all part of the fun of international travel these days. These sort of delays are becoming more and more common. Uh, travel internationally is really not glamorous these days. It's, it can be quite difficult. But, uh, and you know, I've really, as I've said before, I don't want to rant in this podcast again about Qantas, but I'm just so disappointed in that airline. It's really been turned into nothing but a corporate greed machine. Um, and I'm very happy to be moving away from them uh, and taking my business elsewhere. So, um, yeah, so look, let's move on to the topic of the day, which is the ideal cold weather wildlife clothing. Now, this is something I get asked pretty much on every single trip, you know, what's the, the best clothing to bring? And my take on this has changed a lot over the years that I've been doing this. And I want to talk specifically, I've done a couple of podcasts recently about cold weather clothing, but I just want to expand on that a little bit in this podcast uh, and just talk more about my methodology and thinking behind why I'm, I now prefer to use a lot of hunting clothing when I'm photographing wildlife in winter, as opposed to some of the brand name mountaineering brands that are very, very popular. And there are a number of reasons for this. The first one, and and quite honestly, probably one of the biggest ones is price. If you have a look at what hunting clothing costs versus some of the high-end mountaineering brands, and I'm not going to mention brands in this podcast. We all know the brands I'm talking about. The difference can be four times or five times the price. Uh, and a lot of the time, both brands, uh, whether it's hunting clothing or a high-end mountaineering brand, are both made in China or in Asia somewhere. Uh, and therefore, what are you paying for? You're paying for the brand name that's written across the jacket or the pants or whatever it might be. And you're not really paying for anything that's better quality. In fact, a lot of the time, you're paying for something that's not as good a quality in my experience. So I've moved to a lot of hunting clothing for again not just because of price but price is certainly a, a determining factor i can buy you know a, sort of a, a cold weather bib pant that's insulated waterproof quiet offers camouflage um, camouflage against uh, to help photograph uh, wildlife and i can buy it for probably 200 to 300 dollars whereas in a mountaineering brand that same pant can be upwards of a thousand dollars so there's a huge difference in price and when you consider that 
they're both made in Asia, it doesn't make any sense to me to pay that extra. And on top of that, you're picking up the benefit of the cold weather clothes, the hunting clothing being camouflage clothing, meaning, meaning it works better for the wildlife. And that can be the difference between getting a great shot and not getting a great shot. And I saw this recently in Mongolia on my Palascat trip. So I took a full set of cold weather hunting clothing, camouflage cold weather hunting clothing on me, with me, on me. Yes, it was on me. I was wearing it, but with me. And um, I was able to disguise myself a little bit, if you like, for lack of a better term, and get better photographs of the Palascat than I might have been otherwise had I been wearing a bright orange or bright red or blue jacket or whatever some of the other bright colors that this mountaineering clothing comes in. So I think it's worth thinking about if you're going to do cold weather or even not cold weather, but just wildlife photography in general, I'm finding more and more that camouflage clothing does offer very, very significant benefits uh, in getting better photographs and it costs less money, which is a nice bonus as well. Now, on top of all of that, camouflage clothing, particularly that that's uh, sold by hunting companies, is usually designed to be very, very quiet. So it doesn't rustle when you walk like a lot of Gore-Tex material does. Uh, So it's very, very quiet, so it doesn't disturb the wildlife. And also a lot of it is anti-scent or anti-smell, meaning it's also designed to try and conceal your scent from the wildlife. So there are a number of benefits that come with hunting clothing. Now, I'm not endorsing hunting of any kind. I'm an anti-hunting person. Uh, I don't like uh, hunting that goes on, even when it's for food most of the time. But that's a separate topic for another day. But I do believe that the clothing that these companies are producing is in many ways much, much better for wildlife photography than the mountaineering brands out there. And on top of that, it's going to save you a ton of money as well. Is it necessary to have camouflage clothing for wildlife photography? No, of course it's not. But does it help? Absolutely, it does help. And I, as I've said, I've been moving to it more and more over the past number of years because I'm seeing more and more benefit, not just to my hip pocket, but to getting better photographs in the field. Uh, and I think that that makes it worthwhile. Now, if you're interested to know what type of clothing I'm using and where I'm getting it, I will talk about the brand that I've been using and the brand I've been using, which I have no affiliation with whatsoever. So it's, this is just a free plug for them, if you like, is King's Camo. It's a US company. Uh, I really like their winter snow patterns. Uh, I used them very extensively in Mongolia. I had just been using them again in Iceland for the Arctic Fox. Uh, and as I said, you can pick up a winter bib and winter jacket for as little as 300 US dollars uh, for a complete kit. Whereas if you were buying that in the, from a high-end mountaineering brand, you might pay well over a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars for both pieces, or even more than that, depending on the brand that you choose. And it's typically not going to be as useful for wildlife photography. Um, hunting clothing, on top of that, also usually has a better distribution of pockets uh, because the company knows that hunters need to carry various things with them, various accessories. So just a small example of this is on my King's Camo winter jacket, it has non-slip shoulders. Now those non-slip shoulder pads are designed specifically for slinging a rifle, but they also work extremely well for slinging a camera. So I can sling my 600 millimeter over either shoulder and not worry too much about the strap slipping off. Whereas if I'm using my mountaineering jackets, they don't have that feature. Uh, And it's a constant pain to be moving the strap again up onto the shoulder. So little things like that make a very, very big difference. 
large pockets so that you can accommodate big, big phones, whether it's an Apple phone or an Android phone. That's something you see a lot on this hunting clothing as well. Big cargo pockets. Uh, so you can store things like, you know, extenders or l- lens shades or anything that whatever it might be, lens protectors, whatever it might be that you need to store. Uh, so I just find that the design of the clothing is better as well. Yes, it's not designed to wear a climbing harness in, but I'm not wearing a climbing harness and neither are any of my clients when we're out photographing in the field. So buying a lot of these mountaineering jackets that are designed with pockets to be accessed while you're wearing a climbing harness is fine if that's what you're doing. But most of the time in photography, in fact, 99.99% of the time, we're never wearing a climbing harness and we don't need it. So having those pockets is not useful. It's better to have larger cargo pockets where you can store more things. Even if it's things like some of the things I like to store in my winter jacket, for example, is I store a knife, a fold out knife. I have a whistle with me in case I get lost. I have lens cloths for cleaning snow and rain off my lenses. Um, usually I put my lens, uh, lens caps in the pockets of my jackets when I'm out in the field. And sometimes I'll take snacks with me as well. So there's a lot of things, that can, my phone as well. A lot of things can go into the pockets of this clothing. As I said, I don't want to be an endorsement for companies that sell hunting clothing uh, or the, the hunting that goes on. But I do believe that the clothing they offer is more suited to wildlife photography than a lot of the mountaineering brands. And a lot of people I think would be better served in their photography to go this way and they're, and they're going to save money as well. So it's just a little bit of something to think about. It's been my experience over recent years. I know camouflage clothing is not very cool um, and it's a bit geeky and it can be quite uncomfortable to wear in, in, in urban environments, if you like. But I just pack it in my bag and I get it out when I'm in the field and when I need it. And when I'm done with it, it goes back in the bag. So I'm not having to wear it around urban environments, cities, towns, whatever. I just break it out as I need it. And I think that's the best way to go. So I think that's it. Uh, just my thoughts on cold weather wildlife clothing, the benefits uh, of, of winter camouflage, and really do, I am serious when I say it does make a difference to the wildlife. It's not going to completely conceal you, of course, uh, or fool the wildlife, but quite often it can be the difference between getting a shot and not because it can take the wildlife a moment longer to recognise you laying down in the snow if you're wearing a good set of snow pattern camouflage than if you're wearing a bright orange jacket. Uh, and you're less likely to get a scared image where the, anim- the animal looks scared because it recognises that there's a human being there. Uh, so I find there are very, very significant benefits to this. Would I use it on, on, on a trip to Antarctica? No, not necessarily. You don't need winter camouflage clothing uh, around penguins because, frankly, they're not scared of humans. But any wildlife that potentially is, which is most wildlife, birds other than penguins, um, cats, foxes, whatever it might be, you're probably going to be better served in camouflage clothing and using a pattern that's appropriate to the environment that you're in. So whether it's a snow pattern for a snow environment or a wood pattern for a woodland environment or a mountain pattern, there are many, many patterns to choose from. I don't necessarily believe one is better than the other. I think there are, it really depends on the environment that you're going into. But uh, well worth thinking about. If you're looking to pick up some new clothing, uh, you're going on a trip to photograph wildlife, give yourself the best chance, uh, save some money over the high-end mountaineering brands and have a better set of clothing to boot. So that's it for today. I'm, As I said, I'm in Doha at the moment. I've got my flight home in uh, a few hours time like four hours or something like that i'm hoping that flight goes on time because i actually have to get, i actually will get home on the 19th at 6 30 in the evening 
go home, unpack my bag, and then I actually have to go back to the airport at 5 a.m. the following day to fly to Sydney for the day to take care of um, some citizenship business that I've, I've been working on for a long time to get my Slovak citizenship. So I need to go and register all the documents at the embassy in Sydney. So I am really not going to have much time to hit the ground. Uh, well, I'm going to hit the ground running rather when I get home. And then I've got about a week or a little bit over a week before I leave for Ellesmere Island. So I have a lot to do in not a lot of time, but looking forward to all of it very, very much. So that's it for today. I'm Josh. It has been the 18th of February, 2023, podcast number 64. And I look forward to seeing you out in the field. Take care.